Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hi, it's Duanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. We have so much work to do. A lot of work happened this week. So here's the thing, though. There was this person, and I... I feel like you probably didn't see this, but maybe you did. Did you see the person who found Beyonce at Twitter and posted pictures of it? At Target. At Target. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I I don't know. I did. I did see that. And my first thought was, okay, first, like, oh my God, you're so lucky. Like, how come? <laughs> and then second, I don't know that I would have had the presence of mind. Would you? Would you? And the temerity? Well, listen, okay, uh, presence of mind is one thing. That's because we are old people and young people know the first thing you do at any time is pull out your phone. Right. I'm not good at that, I will say. Right. I will pull out my phone, like, no, I will pull out my phone always to check emails and texts and whatever, but it never occurs to me to pull out my phone to document, like, visually something. No, to record the situation. Correct. That's where we are behind. And, uh, you know, I was with, uh, somebody once who's a bit more millennial when we saw a dude walk by in a Trump t-shirt pushing a baby and I stood there being all like ah, and immediately he was like oh you got to capture that so and maybe that speaks to the temerity as well because if you're already capturing everything else then you're just watching your world go by and you're like hey there's Queen B. I'm just gonna pick that up but it's also not the temerity of of just pulling out your phone it's she travels, I can't imagine, I don't know if I saw him in any of those shots, but like Julius is always with her. No, there was no You didn't recorded, see Julius? No. Uh, he may have been there, but there was yeah. no, he's not in the pictures. But I guess what I mean is like… By the a, way, Julius is, if for you know, the uninitiated, which how could you not know, <laughs> is her bodyguard. Long time. But this is a public place. She's out there doing her thing. Um… You know, did this person do a public service by by taking these shots? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to say I would be a hypocrite um, because I looked at the photos. Yeah. And, and I enjoyed them. Um, and I also was really happy about the fact that Beyonce was at Target. But… So I can't go come like I having done all those things and said all that I can't come down on the side of like sanctimony and righteousness and be like leave her alone. No, but like if I don't know to me it's not the same thing as like if you're at dinner. Even though that's a public place, I feel like there's more of an expectation mm-hmm. of privacy if you're you know engaged in a private social conversation kind of thing. Uh, it, it, the the shots of people pumping gas or acquiring a big-ass My Little Pony set of puzzles or whatever it turns out to be, I'm like, uh, this is, you know, that's just the cost of doing business. You could have had your phone out taking pictures of anybody, and it just happened to be her. But you know what? This is also why I, this for the same reason, 
I don't think like, you know, Bigfoot or the secret creatures exists. I'm sorry. Are, are, are... <laughs> you know, there's like there In this few... episode, we link Beyonce <laughs> to the Loch Ness monster plus Wait, what? You know, Okay, so I think that recently there was some sighting of one of these secret creatures. Is there a bit like... <laughs> Sorry, remember you did the definition of Julius a minute ago? Let's talk about secret creatures. I just feel like I never know all the names. Like there's a Bigfoot and there's a Loch Ness Monster and I think there's one more guy or like a famous one. Are you thinking of the Abominable Snowman? Maybe. Maybe. That guy. <laughs> okay. Anyway, my point is, is that I used to think that maybe those things existed, and now I don't because of pictures or it didn't happen. Right. But then we come to, like, the Bow Wow Challenge. Like, anything can be faked in a picture if you want to. Sure, but, like, most of the pictures of Bigfoot or secret creatures are so blurry, right? And it's like a shadow of a shadow of a shadow. And I'm just saying that, like, any Bigfoot or secret creature is pretty primitive, <laughs> And they I love that you keep calling them secret creatures. <laughs> and they live in a cave. And when they come out, they don't know about camera phones. Like, I don't think that they're savvy enough to be like, I have to, in order to, pre like, I have to be extra careful these days to protect my identity. Wait. Because people have Wait. cell phones now. Sorry. You think that these secret creatures, as you call them, are motivated not to be seen? Like, whether cell phone cameras or not, you think they have an active enterprise not to be seen? Well, that's my second point. Number one, pictures or it didn't happen. Yeah. And number two, given what we now know of nature and fame and fame <laughs> and fame <laughs> Oh, my God. Like, I feel like any secret creature would, when they realize that, like, if they've come out a few times, if they exist, which they don't, and people are taking pictures of them, they would be like, oh, my God, I quite enjoy this. I love being photographed. And they would actually come out of hiding out of the cave and, and, and be like, everybody love me. Why are you assuming, why are you like assigning so much, I don't know, sentience to these? I'm not, don't yell at me. I'm not saying that secret fictional creatures don't have brains, but are you assuming that they like, what? Yeah. No, that makes no sense. I think if Bigfoot or the abominable, what had, abominable, <laughs> it's not a word I'm good at snowman um, existed, they would have a reality show by now. Oh, my God. Like, I appreciate <laughs> you and the way that your brain works, but this is not where I expected this to go. It is linked, kind of, in a way to our subject matter yeah. all the time and fame and its effects. Yeah, I guess so. Or they're pure animals and they're only worried about their, uh, you know, sustenance or whatever. Yeah, but... All the animals that we know of, we know of. How come this particular animal is so elusive? Because they're fake, as you already mentioned. There you go. Yeah, but not because they don't <laughs> want their privacy exposed. Not because they're like, I'm going to move to a ranch in New Mexico and protect myself. Pixar didn't happen, or otherwise they'd be like Kardashians. I, I actually can't. I can't go this far into, like, it's a reality show about seaward snakes. Uh, we should get to reality such as it is. All right. Well, the reality that we're going to start with um, at the beginning of this episode is something that many, many, many of you have been writing to us about and tweeting to us about, and that is J.K. Rowling's response to criticism 
of Johnny Depp being cast in Fantastic Beasts and the franchise and the upcoming Crimes of Grindelwald. Yeah, the Crimes of Grindelwald. So um, David Yates, the director, responded a couple of weeks ago, and he essentially, his statement was horrible, um, and he essentially said, uh, you know, all of these cases of sexual harassment and misconduct that we've been hearing about in Hollywood uh, involve multiple accusers, and therefore, like, you can't deny it. Whereas with Johnny, there was one person who made one claim. Um, it, yeah. And he used pretty offensive language there, too. I don't think he was as delicate as made a claim, either. Yeah. Uh, so there's there were tones of doubt sewn in from the beginning. Correct. And now J.K. Rowling has uh, updated her website and written um, written a statement. And many of you, I, no, actually not many, all of you, we haven't heard from anybody who's been like, hey, I support what she says. Um, and this is not an invitation to the Johnny Depp crazed super fans because we hear from you too. Um, nobody has really, nobody has come out to us and written to us and tweeted us saying like, I support her. Thank God she's speaking up. So most… I have seen those opinions on Twitter. They exist. They are not maybe members of the Show Your Work audience that we know of, but we definitely have seen those people online exist. So we've actually addressed um, this issue, not J.K. Rowling's recent statement, but we've talked about this issue before, and it was in the very first episode of Show Your Work, the very, very first episode of this podcast, which oh, Just we about will, a year ago. Yeah, November 2016. Um, and we talked about this very issue, and we defended Joe. Here's what we said. So what we said was, we actually took it from the perspective of production and production schedules. At the time, which was November 2016, we learned that, and that was when the first Fantastic Movie, And that was when the first Fantastic Beasts movie came out. That's right. And that was why kind of the issue came out at the time. That's why people were talking about it then. Right. Because, of course, at the end of that movie, Johnny Depp or Colin Farrell turns into Johnny Depp and we find out that Johnny Depp makes a cameo and then we find out, well, he's probably going to be in the next series of movies. Um, At the time, I should say, November 2016, they had yet to formally announce that the next movie would be focused on Grindelwald. We didn't, yeah, exactly. That was a sort of a speculation, but there, yeah. Although, I mean, probably we suspected it, but there wasn't, you know, they hadn't, you know, said for sure this is the thing and blah, 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 blah. Well, and I always think like, you know, they wait for the box office to be real, right? Like it was also about if there's another movie, then that third movie would be this, but that all depends on how well it does and so forth. Exactly. And some of you are going to be like, well, they always told us there was going to be five movies. And some of you, and some of you right now are going to say, well, they always told us there were going to be five movies. And I get that and we get that. But the thing is, is that that's what they planned for. Had the first one tanked, there ain't no four other movies. And the best example for this is look what's happening to DC after Justice League. So they planned for a series of a standalone this movie and a this movie and a that movie, but Justice League, as we know, has not done what Justice League was supposed to do, and now the entire DC slate is kind of a a big question mark. Except for Wonder Woman. Except for the woman. But 
so back we come to, that was a year ago. We sounded yes. so young and cute. <laughs> um, and yeah, we said, you know, things happen and you don't know things. And this was... Well, we talked about production schedules specifically because we learned at the time that Johnny Depp shot his cameo in January of 2016 over two or three days. And the assault and domestic violence claims were not made public until four to five months after the cameo was shot, at which point, as you and I discussed at length, then, Duanna, they were deep into post. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a done deal, and then you got to reshoot it, and you have to figure out who it is and what it is and all that kind of thing. That was reasonable then. That was also long before the current climate, the current culture. That was before we knew everything we know. And I assume that that is why this statement was released when it was. Uh, my first question to you when this broke was, why now? Why did this come out now? Of course, David Yates made a statement two weeks ago. And then J.K. Rowling released, as you said, on her website, this statement. And she prefaced it certainly on Twitter with, here's what I can say about that. Uh, and do you want to read her statement? Um, okay. So here is the part of the statement that people are bumping up against. For me personally, the inability to speak openly to fans about this issue has been difficult, frustrating, and at times painful. However, the agreements that have been put in place to protect the privacy of two people, both of whom have expressed a desire to get on with their lives, must be respected. Based on our understanding of the circumstances, the filmmakers and I are not only comfortable sticking with our original casting, but genuinely happy to have Johnny playing a major character in the movies. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's hard not to parse that into layman's terms. I think basically, you know, she says, wish I could tell you more, but I know something you don't. And that's why we're fine with it or happy with it. Is that a fair uh, paraphrase of what you just read? Yeah. It's, it's a, definitely that is the thread of suggestion. Uh, more than suggestion, I would say. That's a, that's a, I don't think I've added any inference there. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's as plain as you can make it. Okay. So yeah, wish we could tell you more, but we can't, but we know something you don't and we are fine with it. Did you see a similarity between that JK Rowling statement and Lena Dunham and Jenny Connors initial before they backtracked statement in defense of Murray Miller? It's <laughs> alarmingly similar. Yeah. And of course, in case you have, as many people have done, in case you've decided not to follow that story for uh, your own self-care, not only did they, of course, backtrack and say, we should never have said this uh, and accused somebody of lying. Uh, now his lawyers have said, oh, actually that woman never came to him looking for money. That was a, oh, a misinterpretation of uh -huh. good faith facts or some bullshit. Right. So basically, yes, it is almost an exact photocopy, an uncomfortable photocopy mm -hmm. of a statement that not only turned out to be victim shaming, but arguably, probably based on false information. Right. So it's troubling is where we are. It's really troubling. And you know, a few minutes ago, 
you were like, oh, those innocent times, right? Referring to our first conversation about this during our first podcast about this issue. Also, we were just cute. <laughs> and and you also said um, back then we didn't know what we know now in terms of what the climate of Hollywood is. And part of that new knowledge is also seeing reaction, some bad and some good, and also seeing what Hollywood is capable of. And so what happened very, very recently is that, and I thought about this as I was re-listening to that podcast, because at the time we were talking about production schedules and we were talking about it being too late to do things. And at the time, it sounded really good. (laughs) And then a year later, the producers and the director and the cast of All the Money in the World are basically reshooting, as we speak, all of Kevin Spacey's scenes and replacing it with Christopher Plummer, even though the movie is opening in two weeks. Well, yeah, and, you know, I want to... Yes, absolutely, but it didn't just sound good back then. It was unprecedented that you would recast a role that was in post for what amounted then, I stress then, and I'm talking about what we were saying then, what amounted to hearsay. Uh, And that's a struggle because we knew then, as we know now, that my biggest issue with uh, the conversation surrounding uh, sexual assault and rape and uh, the culture of Hollywood is that there are always those, you know, brosifs going like, uh, innocent until proven guilty. And as we know, the problem here is there is no proof. There is never proof. How can you prove something? Except if there are enough people who sort of say, oh, well, and me too. That's sort of what has, what has come for proof. And that is sort of what we've decided to go with. But at that time, a year ago, that, that was inconceivable. You're quite right. Yeah. And in a year's time, after all this has changed and our innocence is lost, Duanna, a film studio is able to reshoot and hopefully recut and re-edit and remarket a film four weeks before its release. Well, and we should point out why. In case you think this is about altruism, that a film studio can do whatever they have to to protect their money. This is about money, ironically, because of of the movie's title in that case, right? This is if you don't spend the money to stop, post, reshoot, recast, reshoot, recut, if you put the movie out in its original form, it would make, it would not do well at the box office. And any spend before the movie comes out is worth it to save the box office. I want to be clear about that. I'm not trying to be... Uh, cynical or a downer here, but this is not just about protecting workplaces or whatnot. In cases where we're talking about ongoing TV shows where there is a a pollutant in the environment, a known abuser uh, in the environment, yeah, you can say we can fire this person and go on to protect uh, everybody else. But in situations like uh, like the film where they've inserted Christopher Plummer, That's for the bottom line. That's to save the revenue of the box office. So not that 
all the money in the world and Fantastic Beasts were totally an apples to apples situation. There's a lot more CGI involved. I get it. But going back, if you do look at it, we now know that it would have been possible at least. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yeah. point absolutely stands. It's It can be done. It can be done. It was not done. Not only was it not done, we've moved forward. They have like they're deep, deep, deep into production on the second movie. And now both the director and the creator of all of it, this universe, has come out and said, I know more than you do. And because I know more than you do, or I know more than you do based on what I'm assuming really to be one side of the story. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to ever believe that J.K. Rowling and Warner Brothers called up Amber Heard and were like, hey, like, do you want to tell us what happened? This is them sitting down with Johnny, maybe, and being like, so what? And he's going to be like, what? You know, it's curious. I wonder. I don't, I wonder. Because we've seen both. We have seen, I have seen, we've seen companies defend their stars to the death and then find out the realities of what they did and make quick about faces. Certainly in Canada, that's something that we saw publicly with the Gian Gomeshi story, uh, that there were many institutions who stood behind him, were, were staunchly with him, and then immediately when certain things were revealed, uh, made rather public about faces. So that's not without precedent, uh, certainly. Or, you know, maybe let's, here's what it is for me. Let's say for the sake of argument, and again, I stress the sake of argument, let's say there is some proof, some secret proof that Rowling and her cohort have that exonerates Johnny Depp that they feel comfortable with. They know what the climate is. They know what today is. I get protecting somebody's privacy, but get proof that you can talk about because you know this is going to happen. You know how upset this is going to make people. I cannot imagine that a woman who has worked so much to give voices to uh, those who don't have voice, uh, who has, you know, been in a, in a, a relationship that was by her own account abusive, would, would not see how this would appear. So what's going on here? Because this is a woman we have like, loved for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. It, maybe it's blindness uh, to somebody that she cares about personally. Uh, or maybe there's an acceptance that what, you know, the thing we know is enough and we don't have to… Re- I mean, I'm sure that you've had conversations as I've had conversations over the past couple of months. When the subject of believe women comes up, Somebody says, and it's not always a man, sometimes it's a woman, says, yeah, but what if it was your partner? What if it was so-and-so that you love? What if? And the, to me, the answer always is, okay, then if it's that person, then if that's the accusation, and I really, truly know that they weren't there at that time and day because we were doing something terribly illicit and whatever, I will say we were selling drugs so that I can exonerate this person. The privacy, I'm not sure if that's the best way of expressing what I'm trying to say, but the cloaks of privacy, pun not intended, but there (laughs) it is, that are surrounding this in a sort of 
quote-unquote effort to protect everybody is protecting nobody. And it also goes back to that whole um, discussion that we've also been having simultaneously after the Harvey Weinstein revelations broke about these non-disclosure agreements and these confidentiality agreements, right? Mm -hmm. More often than not, they protect people who are in powerful, more powerful, and often abusive um, positions. Of course they do. I want to be clear here uh, that NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements, are a matter of course in our business and probably in many businesses. But it is very standard before you get involved in any kind of project that has any hype around it or is under wraps to sign the agreement that says, if I reveal anything about this project, I'm on the hook for $2 million. It's usually pretty standard. That's for, for us, yeah. for, for lay people, let alone, you know, the, the entire product of, you know, if the movie stands to gross $100 million, uh, and you jeopardize that by violating some NDA, you're on the hook for $100 million. Not only does the contract protect the person in power, but the person not in power stands to not just lose a lot reputationally or whatnot, but there can be really, really scary legal and financial implications. And now we're seeing the equivalent of that in this kind of divorce agreement because, you know, part of my frustration last time we talked about this a year ago was that everybody around Johnny Depp gets to talk or has to talk and is compelled to talk and is is obligated to answer to somebody. And that was my defense of Joe at the time, is that, like, why the f- like, is like, why the fuck is she having to speak and justify and being called into question when this is a guy who has been accused of, uh, you know, throwing a phone at his wife's face and punching her and, well, we've seen the picture. Mm-hmm. And the easy answer to that is, oh, when they got divorced, they both signed an agreement that they wouldn't talk about each other. Well, fuck. You know who that protects? Him. So he gets to stand around and be like, I signed a legal document that I don't have to talk about this and I can't talk about this. So I really can't defend myself, which is why everybody else is defending me. Studio heads, directors, authors. Um, it's, you know, and listen, your, your Johnny Depp supporter will be like, yeah, but she got $7 million out of it. So that's why she signed it. And Duanna, you're rolling your eyes at the ceiling and making a face. $7 million is nothing on his part, and it doesn't make it not true. This is uh, the issue with some of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I saw somebody kind of misinterpreting the facts the other day on Twitter saying, you know, well, they settled out of court, so therefore he didn't do it. It's like, mm, generally, that's actually the opposite of what settling means. If you have, you know, uh, if you have a, a case against somebody and you settle, uh, there's often, not always, there are exceptions, but if you settle, it often means that those complaints had some grounds. But you said something really interesting. You said, like, why is she being forced to speak here? And so, why is she being forced to speak here? Is this the kind of message that if it comes from, is the studio position, and I'm just hypothesizing, is the studio position that if it comes from her, if it's endorsed by a woman, sorry to be gross, but here we are, then it's going to be likelier to go down easier with her fans? Do yes. they Are they, you know, asking her to paper over this so that people will still go to the movie? Well, 
I I didn't think of this, Duanna, and I I think you're on to something. David Yates made statements that were gross and bullshit, which we've discussed, didn't go over well. So then do they send her out? Do they call her up and say, Joe, you know what? We you gotta say something now. You're you're the person who's 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 gonna be able to protect us all. Um, and if you say something, that'll be the end of it. Maybe. Maybe that's how it went down. But again, what's bothering people is not that she said something per se. What's bothering people is that the Harry Potter books and universe are about integrity and, uh, you know, the doing what's right and standing up and being brave at times when it's easier not to and telling truth in the face of evil. This is what's really bothering people. And I'm... I'm not sure I know what to think about that. Yeah, and I think that that's why we've gotten all of these emails and all of these tweets because one of the very, very, very top reasons why we all took to this story and this universe is because she built it around those values. Integrity, doing the right thing, sticking up for, sticking up for your friends, believing people who otherwise would not be believed. Um, and… This just feels so antithetical to all of those tenets. And again, if we're all operating under false premises here and she's sitting there going, oh, but actually that is what I'm doing. Actually, I am speaking the truth and actually I am defending someone or whatnot, then I hate to say this because I so often am frustrated with people who say this, but then there should be a way to to make that I don't know. I don't know. I want to say there should be a way to prove that, but I'm not sure I want to set that as an expectation either. Here's here's what it's come down to and what most people are asking. First of all, they, you know, obviously wanted us to talk about this, but the end game here or the the ultimate question is oh my god, are we canceling JK Rowling? Are we canceling Fantastic Beasts? What do we do with this? It's hard because not only is it totally foreign uh, as, a, as a message from her, she's always been really transparent about what she thinks, about how she feels. She's one of those people who isn't just a writer of stories that you like, but is one of those coveted speakers at places because you know everybody's going to leave with a tear in their eye and inspiration in their heart and so forth. I, I don't know. And... I can't imagine that, I don't know, how do you, how do subsequent stories who, where, how do any subsequent stories she writes about a David and Goliath not leave you with a bit of a taste in your mouth? Does that mean that, like, I can't reread my books and rewatch the movies? I mean, this is the season where I do all that. Well, that's a really great question because, of course, that's, uh, that's something people have been talking about since, since Bill Cosby. And I think we talked about that uh, a bit last week. The idea that, you know, does something like this ruin the art? And I am not by any means, uh, people are not unanimous on this, but I don't think so. I think the feelings that you got from a book or a movie or Edward Scissorhands, if that's your thing, or whatever else can remain the feelings that you that you had 
they still made you who you are up to this point, consuming them and loving them and so forth. It's just unfortunate that they go forward with a bit of an asterisk. Do we see the second movie? Do we skip it? I don't know that I love the first movie that much. Like just based on, just based on pure enjoyment, period. I don't know. I liked it, but I don't know that I loved it to the point where I was like, I can't wait for the second one to come out. In fact, I'm pretty sure, because Yasik and I went to see it together, that I was like, oh yeah, that was good. But I'm pretty sure that I wasn't like, oh fuck, we have to wait like two more years until the second one comes out. I don't think that I was thinking that. But you know what? I'm kind of disappointed to hear that because kind of the, 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 the voting with your feet thing is when you really love something and you choose not to go anyway, right? Ah. Uh, I think, I hope. So this wouldn't be a good example. Well, I don't think it's going to hurt. Look, you asked if we're canceling J.K. Rowling, and I don't know. You know, we would be inclined to say in different contexts, like, everybody gets to make a mistake, but you still get to show your friend, if that's how you think of her, hey, you made a big mistake here. And this is, I think, I suspect she's already getting the message uh, if she somehow thought that this was not going to make the kerfuffle that it did. But I think, yeah, people voting by not going to see this movie is going to send the message you want to send. And you know what? If that's going to be your decision, great. Vote not to see the movie. Don't go see the movie. Unfollow her. Cancel her. But I think also what we have to remember is that J.K. Rowling is not the only one employing Johnny Depp. Like, (laughs) so Pirates of the Caribbean in 2017, I don't remember like the full title of the movie that came out this year did a pretty good box office. And that was a full year after the photo of Amber Heard and her face and all the allegations came out. So I get it. Like, you be mad at J.K. Rowling because she's a big target. And 100%, that's our struggle today too. We loved her. We have loved her. And these are the questions we're asking ourselves. But it can't stop and start at Joe. No, and to put it another way, uh, you know, if she walked into meetings five years ago and said, my dream person to play Grindelwald is Killian Murphy, they would laugh her out of the office. If you're going to have a movie franchise centered around a character that big, it's got to be a big, big name. Um, Killian Murphy, we love you. Um, I'm sure you're great. Uh, But, you know, there's not that you need somebody who is huge enough to embody the hugeness of the characters in people's imaginations. So there are many people who only care, again, about the money, who are actively in pursuit of, yes, keeping Johnny Depp in this role. So, I mean, the big, big, big question that is even bigger than Johnny Depp and bigger than Joe that has consumed us for the last two months is whether or not systemic change will result from all of these revelations and all of these exposés and these women coming forward. That's not to say it hasn't been worth it. Of course it has been worth it. Of course it's wonderful that we're having this conversation. Maybe wonderful is not the right word, but of course it's important that we're having this conversation. But I am a natural cynic. Let's not get too optimistic yet, especially since you're right. The money drives it, Duanna. Every time. 
And so when those money interests are going to be prioritized over the morality interests, over the integrity, then I don't know. And they can't line up, then I don't know that like a year from now, we're going to be looking at an industry, all the industries actually, that has has actually moved that much far forward. Well, but we go baby steps and it's not a reason not to try. It's not a reason not sure. to make things different. You have to push, but there are mechanisms in place that take a lot of pushing to change. And this is one of those instances where we're kind of seeing the power of, as you said, the power of what Hollywood can do come up against the, the, the heft of what they decide they want to do. Or what they won't do. Yep. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, so you know, last time, I know we keep bringing up last time, but last time we talked about J.K. Rowling on our first ever podcast for Show Your Work, we um, also compared her to Gabrielle Union. At the time, Gabrielle Union was speaking up against, or not against, but she was speaking quite candidly about Nate Parker and Birth of a Nation. And she, it seemed like she was on her own. And we had this conversation and and your point was, um, what do you have to lose? The more you have to lose, you know, and all that whole idea of it. And, um, and curiously enough, you pitched a Gabrielle Union story this week, a week that we happen to once again be talking about J.K. Rowling. So maybe everything's cyclical. Let's see. Who do we do with the second episode? Uh, but yeah, no, I find and have found Gabrielle Union to be so interesting because as you point out, you know, she's been here. She was talking about Nate Parker and Birth of a Nation, uh, but she uh, has been talking about kind of uh, the systemic oppression of women and uh, rape culture and how it exists and, of course, her own assault uh, the whole time, you know, basically since she has had a platform. And she came to mind this week because, of course, uh, the Time magazine cover that revealed uh, the, you know, the truth tellers. What was the phrase that they used? What did they call them? Silence breakers. The silence breakers. Uh, and they don't include Gabrielle Union on the cover. Uh, there may be a reference there, but she is not included on the cover. And you kind of go, yeah, but she's been here. She was here. You know, I was, we'll get to, you know, some other people and the ways that they have been celebrated. Uh, but it was surprising to me to realize that she's this sort of adjacent part of the conversation. Almost, it has almost become... I don't want to say her 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 movement, uh, but it's something that she does so consistently and yet doesn't seem to get credit for it. No, and, and she also had her own interview this week. She was profiled in the New York Times, and you know, this is the pitch that you sent over, a video of her talking about sexual violence. 
and talking about how the current conversation about sexual violence once again reflects the inequality in general in society between white women and, and black women. And women of color of of all mm-hmm. colors. Yes. She basically said, you know, this was going on, this has been going on, but it didn't become a national conversation until there were perfect victims, in her words. Uh, meaning, of course, in this case, that they were white, wealthy actresses who are, who are admired by many, right? Like, that's the basic profile of the Harvey Weinstein victim, uh, which then kind of gave rise to everybody else. It's an interesting position to be in uh, that she sort of is cataloging all of this. Obviously, being interviewed by the New York Times is not no profile. That's clearly a rarefied position to be in. But she is not one of the voices of the current movement in the way that uh, some some people are, in the way that Rose McGowan is, in the way that Taylor Swift is on that cover. Uh, and it's hard not to make assumptions about why. So am I making the wrong assumptions about why? No, I think that she flat out gave you the thesis or gave us the thesis to think about, which she probably would be the first to say, I'm not the first to say this, but I might have the biggest platform to say it on. Um, And now I have another responsibility to not only be me too and to be like early, early me too, but to also be like, hey, when we're me tooing, who's included in that conversation? And this is another shade of intersectionality that is a word that for those of us who have been trying to spend more time on this and are learning from, from people who are wiser than us is a word that, you know, I guess in the last two or three years has become more common, but I don't know that it is, it is really internalized the way it should be and processed. You know, like it's… Uh, break it down a little bit more for us. How do you mean? When we talk about intersectionality, specifically it means, hey, we get it, that there is all kinds of disenfranchisement and unfairness and inequality. But some people are more disenfranchised and more unequal than others. And or there are shades and layers that don't apply to some people, right? Your experiences as a woman with all of the uh, inequalities and and garbage that goes along with that uh, is shaded, no pun intended, by your experiences as a black woman or a woman of color, uh, as, a, as a person of color, and then as a woman of color. The intersectionality literally meaning where those things meet. And of course, that also extends to those who are differently abled, those who are, you know, have uh, intellectual or other dis- differences or disabilities. It's not just about being a woman. Uh, you know, Saturday Night Live had that video, that uh, that song that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks about Welcome to Hell. Uh, and they actually pause partway through in a bit of sort of meta-commentary for, uh, you know, for Leslie Jones to go, yeah, but it's way worse for black women. You know that, right? For women of color. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go on singing mm-hmm. their songs and she goes off screen. So it's 
it's a lot for her to have. Uh, and when I say her, it's a lot for Gabrielle Union to sort of be, as you say, sort of a, a totem for. But given that this is show your work and that we're always talking about the work of the work uh, as well as, you know, the things that come out of it. And of course, these past few months have meant that we're talking about social issues much more than we ever expected. You're giving me a really curious look right now, and I'll tell you where I'm going. I also wonder whether this is about Gabrielle Union's profile as an actress. If this were Carrie Washington, would she be out in front and the poster person for uh, the movement? If it were, uh, you know, certainly uh, Lupita Nyong'o spoke up against Harvey Weinstein, and that was an added air of legitimacy because that was at that time an Oscar winner as opposed to a number of accusers who were, forgive me, also rands. These things shouldn't matter, but in the context of Gabrielle Union talking about perfect victims or perfect voices, to paraphrase, there's also that discomfort with the idea that like the more famous the person, the better, right? The more legitimate, the better. And so if we bring it back to Kerry Washington then. If Kerry Washington had a consistent story and platform that was as clear, uh, would she be on the cover of Time magazine? Uh, And I hate to conflate any two black women, but I don't think it's solely about the fact that this is a woman of color, but that she also, she is taking on the mantle of being the woman of color who talks about how things are different and, and is able to point out who the perfect victims are. But I also wonder, as we talked about last year, whether she does this from a place of relative ease because, you know, she's not, uh, she doesn't have six dozen endorsements that uh, that might be endangered by being so vocal. She is not as high profile as somebody who is kind of propping up a television network on her face alone. There's a freedom to that, uh, but also, uh, but also a disadvantage. Have you read her book? I haven't yet. Have yeah. you? Yeah. No, I haven't. And I know that the reason I ask you this is because. You know, for the last couple of months now, she's been on a book tour. Um, it's We're Gonna Need More Wine is uh, is the title of the book. And she's been on this book tour. And, of course, the release of the book just happened to, of course, she could never, no one would know, could know, um, happened to coincide with, with the Harvey Weinstein expose and all these revelations. And, man, I today I was thinking about her um, because I knew that we were going to talk about her. And I thought to myself… How would her book tour have have looked different? Would it have looked different? I would wager that it would. And I, yeah, I think it would look different. And I think that, you know, a book tour is about selling books. And selling books is about selling books and telling your story. And also, let's be honest, about raising your profile. And I, I wonder what stories she would be telling, obviously stories from her books, but what kinds of different questions she'd be asked if this was happening at a different time, if it was a release that had happened six months ago or six months later. I I agree. Like I, Again, neither of us have read the book yet. and I, It's definitely on the list for Christmas and has been. Oh, for sure. And I'm 
you know, the book is based on her experiences and her life. So I don't doubt that there will at least be an illusion. Oh, well, I'm sure it is touched on. Absolutely. To what happened. So certainly it would have been touched on, but it has been such a dominant discussion over the last eight weeks that I, I, that I, I really admire the fact that she's leaned into it and stepped into it, stepped, you know, fully embraced it. Okay. You know what? I actually have this experience and this is the conversation that has engulfed the whole industry. I will take the opportunity to talk about it because I, I think we've seen, we've seen many people want to, on these kinds of book tours, keep it like, happy, happy, I have a book that's called We're Going to Need More Wine. It's kind of like, you know, clearly the demographic is to certain women or to women. And we're going to talk about, um, you know, we're going to talk about girl talk and we're going to talk about the kinds of conversations that we have. And do you want it to be so like everything I, every conversation I have, do I want it to be so dark? Do I want it to be so serious? Am I worried that people are going to be so sick of this? And I appreciate that she hasn't run away from it. Yeah, I appreciate it, but that's kind of my point. You know, I have a bit of a reputation among our friends uh, for uh, being a fan of the underdog a little bit. Uh, I am interested in the person who plays the best friend and, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the person who's the working actor who's not quite the breakout star. Uh, and this has been a, a longstanding uh, quirk, if you will. Um, and raise your hands with me if the first time you kind of met Gabrielle Union was playing Chastity, the best friend in 10 Things I Hate About You, because obviously. But you're right. Yes, she's leaned in. She's done this, the book tour. But I guess what I'm asking is why, especially now, why isn't Gabrielle Union a bigger deal? You know, it's not just that she spoke about uh, her attack and has been speaking about it. It's not just that, you know, she spoke to Oprah about it. It's that, you know, her being Mary Jane, which is largely considered to be a soap that she did for many years, also kind of really confronted some issues. There are trafficking issues and other things involved. It's a good show. She's a, she's an interesting, intelligent person that you want to listen to. I'm just, I'm kind of curious as to why she's not a bigger deal. Well, let's play this out. Why isn't she a bigger deal? So, I don't know. Let's let's mock up a meeting. Who do we have for this role? Well, I mean, okay, sure. So, yeah, we got these three names. We got this one, this one, this one. We got Gabrielle Union. Uh, so you discard person A because she's too expensive. That person just did an indie movie and she's going to get nominated for an award, so she's out. Uh, and then we have, I mean, it's hard to do this because it's hard to think of who her contemporaries are. Gabrielle Union is also, I'm about to blow your mind, uh, she's in her mid-40s, which is not what you think when you see her on screen. I think if we're being really honest that uh, being Mary Jane, which is on BET, uh, is sometimes seen as almost industry adjacent. Like it's it's BET, it's entertainment for black people, i.e., not entertainment for anybody who isn't black. This could not be further from the truth, by the way. It is an entertaining show, uh, as are most of the shows uh, that are made by Mara Brocka Keel, who created that show. Uh, but that's the reality. That's what we're talking about, right? She's seen as being a niche player. 
let's say. But I also think it comes back to the, the same old thing, which is, why would we get Gabrielle? Um, let's go for Carrie first. Right. But why do we go for Carrie? Extend that thought. Why do you go for Carrie Washington? Oh, Carrie's on ABC, not on BET. Exactly. She's on a network that appeals to everyone. You know, when they say, oh, scandal, like, a, a, you know, I don't know the exact stat right now of, of Carrie Washington being a, lead, a leading black woman on a network sitcom, or pardon me, Carrie Washington being the black woman who heads up a network drama uh, is, it, it's certainly extremely rare. I cannot remember exactly how long it had been. But when they say that, they also mean a network drama, meaning something that everybody will watch across America, something that sells in the Europe and, you know, in Europe and Asia, and nobody gets weird about it. Uh, she's somebody who has been anointed by everyone. That's why they want Kerry Washington. It's not just, oh, well, ABC is better letters than BET. But also I think that deeper than that, there is almost an assumption and an accepted one that one Carrie Washington is enough. Like, you know, you have the Emma Stones and the Jennifer Lawrences and the Emma Watsons, and they are always looking for who's the next Jennifer Lawrence? Who's the next Emma Stone? Who's the next whoever, whoever? I don't know that actively, as, as an industry, and we are in it, like in a periphery way and, you know, for you in a much more direct way, collectively enough people in the industry say, who's the next Kerry Washington? Who's the next Lupita? Who's the next Gabrielle Union? And what I love about you saying that is that, in fact, Kerry Washington herself skewered that concept on SNL when she was hosting uh, when SNL was under a lot of fire for not having any black female cast members, they had her run off stage to play uh, a series of different characters uh, in one sketch to kind of highlight that point, that because they don't have that many, uh, that Kerry Washington is enough. I would also like to note that in the intervening years, they have hired and uh, now no longer employ Sashir Zameda though Leslie Jones continues to be employed. So you're right. They already have one. They have somebody who fits that role. So uh, let's have a different meeting. If you're Gabrielle Union's career coaches and the book has come out and she's had this, you know, New York Times video happen and so forth, what do you have her do next? And before I before I allow you to speak. Listen to me. Uh, but we should point out that one of the things that we talked about in and around Birth of a Nation is that before the Nate Parker controversy began, Birth of a Nation was going to do big things for everybody that was in it. One of the things that happened with that controversy is that that movie, which was considered to be really powerful and really important, did not get nearly the due that it was supposed to. That's a great, great, great thing to bring up because in the aftermath, the tragedy, if I can put that in quotation marks, is that because of what happened with Nate Parker, Army Hammer's opportunity, because it was supposed to do something for Army Hammer, was derailed. Like, 
that was the dominant thing, right? He just was profiled in The Hollywood Reporter and there was a litany of examples of how many times his career was derailed because of this and that and it was supposed to be worth of a nation and oh, poor bad luck on Army Hammer. Then the Nate Parker thing happened and he had to start all over again. And like you just mentioned, everybody involved with that film, it was supposed to do big things for. But the focus on, um, the, focus on the derailment happened to be Army Hammer, and not Gabrielle Union. Yes, that's right. So are we still going with the question, what if I was managing Gabrielle Union, what I would have her do next? Yeah. Well, I have to say that I would watch a Gabrielle Union talk show. I mean, you know, I appreciate that, and I think that's a valid, a valid way to go, Sure. But it's not acting. Are you saying that there's not an acting role left for Gabrielle Union? No. I think that she can act. Like, I mean, of course, pursue those acting roles. And at this point, I don't think that… I don't think that Gabrielle Union is not smart enough to be creating her own opportunities um, and writing her own opportunities and looking for people to develop opportunities with her. But I think that… She has been able to, you know, when you sent me the pitch, I, what were your words? You said that she was so, in her, that interview, she was so compelling. You couldn't take your eyes off of her. Yeah. And she was t- telling a very personal story and she was giving her very personal opinions. That is a kind of magic. Um, and I, when, I, when I watched that, I agreed with you I, and I saw that magic and I was like, why aren't we getting more of this magic? And on a more regular basis, I would like to see Gabrielle Union have that opportunity to share with others, extract from others their similar experiences. It's that level of empathy. Yeah, it's somebody who you can tell is listening, you know, as well as not just talking for their own effect, who is, is participating in an actual conversation. So you know, how, you know how we were just talking about who's the next and they never ask who's the next this person or who's the next person? Yeah. What if she could be the next Oprah? I mean, I guess, and that's great, but I also think, like, why can't she be the next Alice and Janney? Why can't she be, you know, the next… I don't know. I'm thinking about, like, you know angry mothers in indie movies who have had, like, hard lots in life that they, that they struggle through. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, is there sort of a, like, where's her Christmas rom-com, you know? Let's, I, I, I hear those things and I think that those, your idea to see her be compelling with, with others is really interesting, but I also am selfish enough just to want the focus on her for a while. The thing with talk shows, which are a really fascinating uh, form of of entertainment, of media, or even of sort of more direct one-to-one conversations like an Oprah or a Barbara Walters or so forth, uh, is that the focus is often on the subject. Today I speak to so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, I still want to speak to Gabrielle Union some more. It's almost like when you want to see somebody have a stand-up special, uh, except not in this case around stand-up. I selfishly want a little more of her. So what do you think she should be doing? Well, I assume she's going to read the shit out of her audiobook. Uh, 
but uh, beyond that, yeah, I would like to see her, if she could, I'd like to see some some hot indie scripts uh, and see what would happen if she did a, a, you know, another sort of small movie that made the festival circuits, get to see her in, in red carpet situations in that way. Uh, and maybe break out of television for her. God knows I don't think that, or even a, even a cable drama, uh, which is ironic given that we've been talking about different networks. But, you know, is there a Hulu show for Gabrielle Union? I would watch that in a minute. I'd watch that too. I think, though, I think what's interesting right now about show business um, is that, you know how, like, in real life we all have side hustles? They, too, all have side hustles. Have you noticed? Oh, sure. You're talking about her her uh, hair and Everything. beauty like, line. The book, she's she's an actor. She's got a show. It's uh, I think it's ended its run, right? Um, Being Mary Jane. It's they finished taping everything. They tape, but I believe there are some still to air. Yeah. So, but her like work on it is done. That's right. So she acts. She writes books. She has hair products. <laughs> um, I think that to me, like, yeah, of course, more acting for Gabrielle Union, cable dramas, but more side hustles. If one of those side hustles leads to a talk show, I'm super down. Tell us what you think. Do you want to see the talk show? Do you want to see the audiobook adapted into a show of its own? Uh, what do you want to see happen next? Do you just want to watch 10 Things I Hate About You over and over again? Uh, keep us posted. Man, that movie. Like, it, it obviously now who, that we know who went on and obviously what happened with Heath Ledger, like, there's a different… I've always loved that movie, but… When I watch it now, there's an added, like, impact to it. There's an added an, uh, intensity. I mean, this is not on our agenda, so we shouldn't spend a lot of time. <laughs> but I would wager that of all those movies, uh, all those teen movies of the late 90s, early 2000s era, that movie was lightning in a bottle uh-huh. in that everybody was caught just as they were about to blow up as opposed to some of the other movies that shall remain nameless, which were maybe the peak of the people who were in them. Not saying any names, but you know who I'm talking about. I wish I could. <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on to Stephen Delane. Who... Well, who is exactly, <laughs> exactly the point? But it's a good segue, actually, because, of course, we're talking about actors and acting and what happens. Um, I really... <laughs> advocated for this story because I, I liked it a lot. I love this story and people still are like, who? who? Unless you've Googled already. So we should, we should identify him by the name that most people would know him by. Yep. Stannis Baratheon. So Stephen Delane played Stannis Baratheon for five seasons? When exactly did he, spoiler, bite it? <laughs> uh, five or six. Uh, he, if you watched the show, he was Stannis Baratheon and you know, if you didn't, he was a, you know, a major character, uh, in a, obviously, you know, a massive cast. Uh, but I didn't, I wanted to say a major player, but he wasn't. And that's kind of the point of this story. It's, and again, it's a really funny story. Like the first time I read it, I kind of laughed, but now that I just said five or six, I think I might change that to four because he wasn't in season one. 
Oh, interesting. Good right? point. Yes, you're right. He the, came the, in the, in season two, right? Yeah, the concept of him was was there. We were introduced to the name Stannis Baratheon. That's but right. We did not meet the actor. That's right. Until season two. So basically, there's a uh, there's an article that was re- released recently um, <laughs> that said Stephen Delane, Stannis Baratheon, uh, had regrets about his time on Game of Thrones, uh, that he didn't like his performance because, <laughs> and I am now quoting from the article, he was never really able to follow the show's plot, even as a fairly central character on it. And so he never had any idea what he was doing. (laughs) Please hold your laughter until the punchline. Until they had finished filming and it was too late for him to act better. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) There's another part of it where he was like, um, (laughs) um, because a lot of his scenes were with Sir Davos. Yes. And, and read that part where he's like. <laughs> so there, uh, there was another actor who played Sir Davos. Sir Davos is meant to be a kind of a right hand to, to Stannis Baratheon. <laughs> They're in almost every scene together. And uh, he says, you know, he talks about the actor, Liam Cunningham, who played Sir Davos and said, uh, Cunningham is so passionate about the show and invests in it so thoroughly that it's quite moving and then he adds that he was entirely dependent on him <laughs> to tell him what was going on in the scenes that they shot together. So here's like, it's the biggest TV show, right? Like, yeah, right it, now. Yeah. Let's, I don't think we can dispute that. It is the biggest TV show. So you're, you have a part on the biggest TV show. It's the show everybody talks about. Like, let's not get it twisted. There were how many episodes this season? Seven? Seven. Yeah. Seven and... Records were broken. Tweets were broken. Everybody talked about it. Um, And it was one of the few shows I feel like in recent times you had to watch on the night. Oh, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. But I will say in his defense that, you know, there were a lot of people who didn't know what the fuck it was in season one. And as you say, he appeared in season two. Now knowing Game of Thrones, now watching, and I never thought this would be the kind of show that I would be into – um, I love it, but I will say that season one was a lot of putting puzzle pieces in place. Maybe the first couple of seasons, just getting everybody on the game board. Right. So it was not then the phenomenon that it is now where everybody like, yes, hushes and turns off the lights. And, uh, we were watching an episode, uh, one night when my father-in-law came over and we knew that he was coming and my husband still wouldn't get up to answer the door <laughs> until there was an appropriate place to pause the scene. Yeah. Um, But I found this really interesting because I think there's, as much as we're laughing, because it's hilarious that he didn't know what was going on, there's a lot of regret here. He says, you know, I wasn't able to act better. And I, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again, if you haven't seen the show, like, I don't know if he like won any hearts. Elaine's out, by the way. She's fully like in a fetal curled up position. You know why? It's because when you when you keep saying he wasn't able to act better, <laughs> I think about his scenes and he fucking sucked. He was terrible. Or he was terrible alongside everybody else. Like this is a show that is preposterous, obviously. We're talking about dragons and like… Black shadows coming out of women and going to murder people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and… Uh, and there's like a ball of green fire like envelops an entire city. 
but there's some really phenomenal subtle acting going on. (laughs) (laughs) And he got to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) Or he didn't. He just felt lost. But I feel bad. I well, okay. Let's why be, because I'm going to tell you why. Okay. So because this is a real life work thing. If you are in a situation where you were doing okay, or you know thought that you were kind of getting along, and maybe not doing your best work, but doing the best you could, and then you realize how outclassed you are, what on earth do you do in that situation? He can't quit. He can't stop being Stannis Baratheon. I didn't read it that way. So maybe that's why I think this is so funny. Like, first of all, the way I read it is that he didn't read it. You know, every time one of these actors from Game of Thrones talks about the role and they talk about um, the show and they talk about the story and they talk about uh, George R. R. Martin, you know that they've read the books. They yeah, have that's a fair point. Studied the source material, dude. It's very clear. <laughs> did not study the source material. Well, he says that point he, the first, <laughs> but he says that he thought that everybody would think it was too fantastical and that it would never work. Like, I, look, we also hear actors of all stripes, every production, saying you don't really know what it's going to be like until you see it cut together, and maybe it'll be great or maybe it'll be terrible. So. And in the case of Game of Thrones, he was shooting whatever the hell he was shooting in, like, I don't know, Newfoundland or Iceland or wherever they were shooting those things. He has no idea what's happening in Croatia or Ireland or wherever they're shooting the rest of it. Um, It's fair to kind of go, I have no idea what's happening here. And I will say, knowing the scenes that Stannis Baratheon was in, it might have amounted to a couple of weeks' work. It's not like you're engrossed in something every day for months the way you are with a movie. Uh, or even if you're on a smaller show, the way you're there every day. I'd be more willing to accept that perspective. And you, like, I mean, like you just said earlier, you are all about the underdog. So this is, like, so classic you. But, and if he was on for one season, I'd get it. But like I said, he was introduced, but not on camera in season one. He comes on in season two when the show has become a phenomenon. Like, after season one, people were like, holy shit, this shit is bananas. We love it so much. Then he gets hired to be in season two. Fine. If he was only on season two, great. But he continues on in season three and he continues on in season four. Like, I don't think that holds up. But, you know, even if all that were the case, at the end of the day, do you say in an interview (laughs) that you don't know what the fuck was going on? Because if he hadn't said this at all, like, our... Our viewing of Stannis Baratheon was always like, this is like the idiot, right? He was listening to Melisandre. He didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He was so stupid. He like sacrificed his daughter. Like we hated him anyway. Like this is a character that you couldn't, you can't redeem. And so the show is there. Like the manuscript has been written. It has been consumed. What are you accomplishing with this? You can't defend the character. The character was written the way the character was written. It played a purpose. The only person who loses here, Stephen Delane, we know who you are now. You've identified yourself by name. I will never forget the name Stephen Delane now. Not because he played Stannis Baratheon, but because he was the idiot who played Stannis Baratheon. See, now I fundamentally disagree with you because I think here 
this he's trying perhaps poorly, but he's trying to fix he's watching and going, "Holy fuck, what if people thought that was my best acting?" What if they thought that's the best I could do? I have to tell everybody that I I know I did a bad job. I'm trying to think of, there's been other instances of actors saying, oh God, I was shit in that movie. I feel like often it's Colin Farrell, but um, (laughs) there have been other instances of people being like, I know that was not amazing. Uh, And I find that that's, I'm I'm into that because of course not everything you do is going to be your best work. You just hope that you're known for your best work before you do something that's a bit of a stinker. Um, You know, I... If, if Julia Roberts came out and was like, you know what? I was not fully on my game and I love trouble. We'd all be like, yeah, sure. Go for it. Like more power to you. Um, cause I think it would be worse to watch all these actors who have elevated what could be kind of <clears throat> schlocky material in the wrong hands, right? If you pitch the story to somebody who doesn't know, as you might, if you've ever tried to tell somebody who's not into fantasy about Game of Thrones, they kind of give you that look like, and you're like, no, no, it's really good. It's really, good. yeah, there's dragons, but seriously, it's really good. Right. Um, you know, you might otherwise be going, oh my God, look at Peter Dinklage. Look at Lena Headey. Like, look at what all these people are doing. Uh, and, and then there's me. <laughs> I think it was damage control. I'm not saying... <laughs> That it worked necessarily, but I think that's what this move was meant to be, was, look, guys, I know and you know. You know what it was? Mandy Moore once said that she thought everybody who bought her first two albums should get a refund. Um, and that was after she'd done several other albums, and but pre This Is Us. And I thought that was a very, you know, kind of candid comment. Like, yeah, I know. I know it was not ideal, guys. I, I read this as an attempt at a similar kind of comment. You know, it's a good comparison, except you save that for when you land your next awesome. Like, <laughs> do you do you basically, because here's the thing, how do different people interpret that quote? We are two reasonable people, I think. You interpreted it one way, and I interpreted it as, okay, you're lazy, you didn't read the source material, and now you're, what is the purpose of this? I'm he's still not going to hire you. But that's it. He's trying to drum up more work. He's basically saying, I'll do better next time. I'll do the reading next time. (laughs) Good luck, Stannis Baratheon. But I mean, listen, I, (laughs) I, I don't know that I spent a lot of time wondering about Stannis Baratheon's acting, uh, especially now since there are so many ways that the story has moved forward without him and the better for it. But uh, I, as a work, from a work perspective, I don't know if I can get behind this move. You are more behind it than I am, but I'd like to put it to everybody else. Was this a good move from who? Stephen Delane, a.k.a. Stannis Baratheon. I'm not even <laughs> saying I think it was a good move. I just understand the motivation behind it. But it's, you know, uh, it's one of those articles where they suggest other articles at the bottom of the page. And there's an article where Jason Momoa says, Game of Thrones is going to go down in history as one of the best things ever. And that's the comparison for you. Um, Jason Momoa played Khal Drogo. Like, he basically played a grunting king who mm-hmm. spoke no English and raped for fun mm-hmm. and somehow made it empathetic and wonderful before biting it after, like, seven episodes. Yeah. 
and ba- kickstarted his career. That's right. So that's the comparison. And Stannis Baratheon. Maybe that's who Stephen Delane is trying to be. He's did like <laughs> three times as many episodes. And yeah. Well, um, if this was the do we need to care about portion <laughs> of the show, my answer is a resounding no. I beg to differ. Look how much you laughed. You need to know who he is in order to get that much enjoyment out of it. But speaking of people who don't always prepare. Ah, uh, Jennifer Lawrence. So, you know, if you missed uh, some of the blog this week, this began, you kind of started stumping to include this story on Wednesday or Thursday, and we had great talks about it, and now here we are recording the podcast, and Jennifer Lawrence is, you know, she's here. She seems to make it onto this show, and that was kind of our discussion. It's like, does she deserve to be here when she gets here all the time, when she, when we talk about her a lot? Yeah, like we're, what, four or five episodes into this season. I think she's come out every single episode. Gee, I wonder why that is. <laughs> and a lot of that is me. Um, the reason why I, I really campaigned to include this was first because she's on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter, Women in Entertainment Issue, edited by Shonda Rhimes, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And so she shares this story, or sorry, Oprah shares the story of their interview And then after that issue comes out, there was the event, which happened, it was a breakfast in Hollywood, and Jennifer Lawrence received the Sherry Lansing Leadership Award that uh, previous recipients include Oprah herself and Angelina Jolie, I believe Jodie Foster, um, relatively young compared to all her predecessors, Jennifer Lawrence, where this award is concerned. Yes. And that's when I was like, Duanna. We have to talk about this. And I sent you the video. Yes. You hadn't watched the video and you butt, butt, butted your way through our email chain. No, I stand behind my butts, but you're right. I had not watched the video at the time. Then I finally got you to watch the video and you wrote back to me with exclamation points. Actually, actually, what happened is that you said, I'm annoyed by this. And there was a poll quote under the video, you know, when part of it plays and they caption it because they know that people like me are not going to click on the whole thing. And I, too, was annoyed by the poll clicks. Yeah. Uh, And then we watched a little bit more, and then we watched the video, and I was even more annoyed. But the difference is, I'm not sure that this is anything new for us in terms of Jennifer Lawrence's work. So the video, uh, which you all uh, can click on and watch on the site if you haven't seen it already, is supposed to be a five-minute acceptance speech. Uh, Thank you for awarding me this, and I want to follow in the footsteps of women ahead of me, and so forth. But that's not what it looked like. No. It was like kind of a halfway stand-up comedy routine. She fumbles, she stammers, she makes not entirely appropriate jokes. At one point, you know, she makes a comment and people start clapping and she sort of stammers, I'm not not sure what I'm supposed to do when you guys do that. Like, uh, yeah. At one point, she's holding the trophy, and she says, I don't know how to hold this. Like, it's it's stream of consciousness. It's so signature Jennifer Lawrence, which most of the time, to be honest, I actually enjoy. It's I, refreshing yes. in, a, in a world of people who are quite rehearsed and quite poised yes. and so forth. I like that she always appears to be herself. Where I really slammed my fist down on the desk was, 
why at that moment, though? I do think as somebody who wants to be what Jennifer Lawrence says she wants to be in that video and in that acceptance speech, you can't giggle when you mispronounce somebody's name. Yeah, but she does. This is what I'm trying to tell you. She gets away with it. If it was somebody else, we'd be like, they don't deserve this, or they would have been booted off that stage. And this is the elephant in the room. She barely deserves that honor to begin with. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, barely. Yeah. Again, this is another instance of giving Jennifer Lawrence an honor because she's a high-profile person who in turn brings visibility to it, not because she's done so much for any given movement. You said, uh, not a f- three or four weeks ago, you said, is Jennifer Lawrence resting on her laurels after kind of calling out the pay inequality, which I might add was her pay inequality? What has she done to deserve this award? Look, the Hollywood Reporter says, and I believe it. I believe that she's philanthropic. I believe that she volunteers. I have no doubt about all that. But as you said, most people do. Or many people, she can't be the only one. I fully understand. They, they yeah. go on to say that she, you know, she has given a lot of money to children's hospitals in her hometown and mm-hmm. created foundations and things for, for funding of arts programs, and so forth. I am absolutely in support of those things. But it's not quite the same thing as being a leader. Yeah. Uh, You know, Shonda Rhimes, as you said, received this award a couple of years ago. And she has been a vocal, staunch, like, advocate and example of how to constantly break through barriers, how to break glass ceilings. She had that incredibly memorable line in her speech which I believe was just one year ago, but I need to check, about how if she has broken through any glass ceilings, it's because hundreds, dozens and hundreds of women who are sitting in the room with her at this time have bumped up against it and made cracks in it uh, so that it was so fractured by the time she was able to break through that she had to do very little altogether. That's a speech. That's not only an acknowledgement and a thank you to the other women in the room, but it's rousing everybody who watches. That's doing what it's supposed to. There's a reason that we can watch these clips uh, because we're not there at the breakfast. We're not giving any money. It's also supposed to inspire. But Jennifer Lawrence kind of glumps and giggles through it and is like, I guess I kind of got this because I sometimes say that like people are dicks. It's very, it's almost disheartening. It is disheartening, especially since, you know, if you read the interview with Oprah, she actually has some specific and clear ideas about how to transform the industry from within. She talks about creating a commission, a commission of women like her who can be like, I mean, the way I read it, it was almost as though there's a call center, you know? And if you are not a Jennifer Lawrence, but you're just starting in the industry and someone calls you into his office and pulls his dick out, you can call the hotline and a Jennifer Lawrence will pick up and she will stand up for you and be the advocate. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that's the idea behind the commission that she wants to build. Um, I quite liked her talking about that. I I quite like the idea of it. I'm interested in seeing how she's going to shape that and move that forward. Um, it, it seemed like she had already formed somewhat of a coalition. 
she made it sound like she had called around and asked, listen, and maybe she hasn't and that's totally bullshit, but in the moment when I was reading it, because this is before I watched the video of her acceptance, I was like, okay, she's doing her job, but behind the scenes and we're just not hearing about it a lot. It's so interesting that you say that because when I read it, uh, it's interesting to come on the heels of our last story because to me, I read it much less generously than you did. I read those comments as being, uh, here's what I would do. Here's what we mm-hmm. could do, not what I am doing. She does say, I know every studio head in town. I know people who know everybody in town. Uh, so it's feasible. But, you know, I guess part of the question here is whether somebody of Jennifer Lawrence's stature, not because she's Jennifer Lawrence, but because she's winning these kinds of awards, doesn't she have some sort of obligation to inspire? Doesn't she have some sort of obligation to have words of wisdom to hand down to, to as you would say, the next Jennifer Lawrence? It seems very uh, self-focused still. It, it's self-focused. And again, there, like when you're receiving an award like this, and as you said, the purpose of that award is to inspire and to show leadership the very, very basic thing that you need to do is if you're quoting somebody, you don't laugh when you mispronounce their name. Listen, we stumble, people stumble. When we talk, we stumble on this show all the time. We get tongue-tied. Um, I get it. Names are hard, and sometimes there's not a lot. See what just happened? Sometimes there's not a lot of spit in your mouth, or sometimes there's too much spit in your mouth. But when you're quoting somebody and you stumble on their name, you don't laugh. Like I, and defenders of Jennifer Lawrence will be like, that's just a natural mechanism. You know, when people are uncomfortable and nervous, they laugh. I, not then. Well, and I think it's worth pointing out that the name in question was Ellie Wiesel, who is a voice <laughs> who's like, you know, the, the kind of epitome of was under-recognized, was considered to be unimportant, lived to tell the tale, um, I think that's kind of, it adds extra context to the kind of casual nature with which she quotes it. I don't know. I don't, I, I really am inclined to say, oh, she's not sincere, but it's actually the opposite of that because, of course, she doesn't seem to do anything that she doesn't care about, which is what people find so refreshing. She doesn't, act pretentious uh, as though she cares more in a way when she doesn't. But the cavalierness is really begins to be startling. Yeah. And the other thing I guess too is that she is, as of press time, 27 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not quite the same as the brash talking 20 year old that we met some time ago. You hope there's a little progress, although maybe I'm asking for too much. Listen, I'm still a little brainwashed. I'm not going to deny it. Um, Ultimately, because I have always been in love with celebrity or intoxicated by the world, I, 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 like many fans out there, the natural inclination is sometimes to defend and to just like. You know, it is... And it's a funny thing maybe coming from me because on the blog, we snark and we challenge and, and call out. 
But ultimately, I think underneath that, the reason why we keep talking about it is because we enjoy observing this world. Absolutely. And look, there's never been such a thing as an even playing field in celebrity or or culture or anything like this. Everybody's kind of on their own scale. And part of the thumb on the scale here is Jennifer Lawrence is ridiculously likable. We know this. Yes. Like, I'm not, I don't dislike her, nor can I deny her sort of charm. Of course she is. I think I was just a little more turned off by the reference to, you know, a couple of years ago, you got really agitated about equal pay. And, uh, you know, you, you did that one thing that one time. I guess in today's, we always talk about the 24-hour news cycle like it's new, but I don't often hear of Jennifer Lawrence doing things unless, you know, these are the headlines we're getting this week about Jennifer Lawrence. It's, oh, she's, uh, she's won the, the Women in Hollywood Award, the honor. But, like, she didn't come out and talk about directors she won't work with. She didn't, uh, you know, stand up and say, I believe Amber Tamblyn. Not that she has to. I don't even know if she's met Amber Tamblyn. But it just seems like her her forays into offering her unfettered opinion are pretty calculated for somebody who's supposed to have opinions all the time and all over the place. I agree. And my point about saying that, like, you know, the natural inclination is to like still doesn't prevent me from feeling generously to you, to borrow from you, impatient. I'm impatient. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I'm impatient with this. Um, that, that, that moment where she mispronounced Ellie Wiesel and then giggled about it, it made me realize that Jennifer Lawrence for as much as she was there to represent leadership and to be a leader, I don't know that anyone around her is mentoring her. Who are the people who are saying when Jennifer Lawrence gets off stage, hey, you know what? That was great. So proud of you. Uh, A lot of people can't see the work that you're doing, but you know what would have been more effective next time you're in a position like this? Not laughing after you stumble, um, saying someone's name, and in particular, that person's name. Especially all that he represented and that you were quoting a very, very inspirational quote from them. It was not the moment. Who, who's doing that for her? Do you think that there any, is anyone actually doing that for her? Did Oprah? Uh, you know, <sighs> Oprah might be about the only person who would, but I also think Oprah is like, Oprah might be done with coaching. Like, sure. she's done a lot for a Oprah, lot of people. Oprah, by the way, who's interviewed Ellie Wiesel. Sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know who that person is, and I don't know whether, as you were speaking, uh, I thought I was prepared to to read to everybody the the kind of addendum at the end of the, they kind of do a bio at the end of the interview with Oprah to explain why Jennifer Lawrence is winning the award. And this is how it reads. It says, uh... Jennifer Lawrence has accomplished more than most in her 27 years. She's won an Oscar, headlined her own billion-dollar franchise, and led the debate on pay equity. She has also become one of Hollywood's most active philanthropists. And I was thinking, you know, for all that that she does, the five minutes that she stands on stage, she may go, ah, so I mispronounced some guy's name, so I giggled about the way I held an award, so what? 
But that, unfortunately, is the work that people notice. Unfortunately, for so many of us, the work that you do in private, as you say, doesn't get seen that much. The stuff that you do in, in, the stuff that you do in public takes on an outsized significance, even if it's just a sort of an honorarium for all the work that you've actually been doing when it matters. And that's not fair, but it is what it is. You know, I, I, I tell me if you think this relates, but for some reason that reminded me of a real world example. I have a friend who um, is a, in a, a senior position in a very specific, um, a very specific specialized industry. Um, and he, the, you know, there's a, a junior analyst, so to speak, who has to write reports and does very good work and goes, is quite thorough about, uh, and is quite thorough in research and in gathering the information and then presenting the findings. But the reports are riddled with typos. So, and what my friend tells me is that the work is actually good. You know, the fundamentals um, of the business the employee shows a very clear understanding in how to extract the information that they need to extract. But unfortunately, like the only thing the client is going to see or the first thing that the clients are going to see are the typos and the misspelling in like the first paragraph. Yeah, look, it is a bullshit thing. It's, it's awful that that's the case, but it's true. People see what they're supposed to see. They don't always read or discern what they're allowed to read or discern. Listen, I had a grade four teacher who loved the girls who underlined everything in colored pencil. And I did the best book reports in the class, but I wasn't underlining shit in colored (laughs) pencil. And do you think she came around when I started using a different color every day? Yes, she did. It's, It's preposterous because the work was the same. The content was the same. But... Sometimes, God, nobody knows this more than Hollywood, pretty packages make people pay attention. Well-turned-out packages, uh, properly processed, spell-checked packages. Mm -hmm. And yeah, who should know better than the person who spends four and a half hours in makeup and hair every day of her life for her job? But to your point, she gets away with it. Yeah. And this time, she she got away with it too. Yeah, well, she was already there being honored. Um, yeah, she got away with it. Although I will say if you watch the full five-minute video, don't just watch the bit that's captioned the way I did at first. There are some people who are unimpressed or not making an effort to pretend to be impressed. There are some faces. Yeah, while she stumbles <laughs> through her her lines. And maybe she'll feel like, oh, that was em- embarrassing and I'll do better next time. Or maybe she thinks it's part of her brand. This is what you get when you get Jennifer Lawrence to an event, right? Yeah. And you know what? Tell us what we need to do better. Is it, you know, the sound of pitter-pattering dogs? (laughs) Um, Is it our very grassroots low-tech studio? I mean, yeah. If you want me to go back to lying on the floor on my back, let me know. Uh, tell us what you think. Tell Yasik about the porn music at the beginning of the show. We want to hear it all. And your work stories, your reactions. We love getting your emails. We share all of them with each other and incorporate them whenever we can. Thanks for listening. 
please keep listening. Please keep leaving your comments, sending us your tweets, sending us your emails. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.